Hello and welcome to the Fundamental Value Podcast, hosted by Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with leading analysts, traditional finance and digital asset firms, and investigate how leading minds in the cryptocurrency space, research, analyze, and quantify the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Guy Hirsch, Managing Director for North America at Kraken. Uh, Guy, it's great to have you on. I'm excited to be here. So let's get right into it. So a question that we always like to, to ask people is, can you talk about your background pre-crypto and kind of how you found yourself falling down the rabbit hole and ending up in the space? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, around the time that, the, um, that Satoshi published uh, the white paper, I was living in San Francisco. Uh, this is where most of the, you know, cypherpunks apparently were kind of living. And so I started to hear about Bitcoin very early on, just by kind of hanging out in all sorts of, uh, uh, you know, startup accelerators, things of that nature. Um, then I think in 2011, um, uh, I had dinner with uh, Vini, the founder of Civic. And this is where like my first kind of, you know, multi-hour long um, discussion about, about Bitcoin and crypto. Uh, and he, he urged me to buy, you know, at least $10,000 worth of uh, Bitcoin then. Sadly, I didn't do that. Uh, I did download the wallet. I did kind of try, but, <clears throat> you know, nothing, uh, n- definitely not $10,000. Uh, continue to learn more about this, continue to learn more about this, but, but started to buy some, some Bitcoin, um, understanding the kind of the philosophical, philosophical and ideological bend to, to what, um, Bitcoin was all about. And it started to really resonate with me. And then in 20, um, 2014, 2015, I was at Samsung, um, <clears throat> leading, uh, innovation strategy, and we've built um, one of the things that I was tasked with is to create differentiating experiences from from Apple retail, like versus Apple retail. So I designed um, a point of sale system, and one of the things we introduced in that point of sale system is the ability to accept Bitcoin as a form of payment. So this was the first time I actually tried to commercialize something that had to do with crypto. Um, it didn't really see the light of day, but really we we you know I worked hard on kind of making it happen. And, and, you know, how Bitcoin would work and why is it beneficial for people to like, say, visit in New York and don't have to then convert to, uh, let's say, yen to dollars, but they can pay with, you know, with a native digital currency. And um, then when I left Samsung, um, Yoni Asia, the founder and CEO of eToro, offered me to lead eToro US. And that was a pure crypto play uh, initially. And I jumped on the opportunity. I thought it was kind of a great opportunity to build a crypto brand in the US. And, um, and yeah, I did that for, uh, for five years. And uh, now I'm with Kraken. So what was that like? So I remember we met uh, in March 2018 for the first time. I was the only person at the time. I believe you were the only person at eToro US. So in a way, you were kind of operating a startup within a already, you know, obviously a startup organization, but a, but a much larger startup organization. So what was that, you know, what was that experience like? 
and, and in that time, right, you know, the U.S. retail market evolved quite significantly, right? W- what kind of changes did you see in the market as, as you know, the firm itself was growing? Yeah, so um, when we met, it was like on the, on when we entered crypto winter, um, December 2017 was, I would say the 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 wave of the of speculator getting into crypto. Before that, I think it was mostly uh, people who were motivated by ideology, were motivated by um, um, kind of you know the the freedom to transact and things of that nature. And then 2017, we really saw like a wave of speculators, like retail customers, kind of coming in and wanting to make like a quick buck. And then when it all died down, uh, it was um, it was like. We, we saw who's in it for the long run. And luckily, both you and I were in it for the long, you know, long haul. Um, well, luckily or unluckily, depending on how you view <laughs> it. But. Yeah. Um, but I thought that it was a great time to actually build, build uh, a brand and build a, a crypto business because you had to come up with a better explanation as to why to allocate to this asset class, why this matters, rather than, oh, look, it went from 3,000 to 19,000, right? That's, um, we, we, just, we just had to do a lot more work. Um, and as it relates to building, building that from scratch in the US, um, it was a great experience. It, it was a startup within a big company. Etoro was successful at the time outside of the US. Um, and it was it was really exciting for me to to kind of build that from the ground up and do it in a in a very kind of methodological way, meaning pursuing the MTLs, uh, understanding what's our brand story, what will be our product features, um, and what really would drive people to buy, um, you know, to to allocate to to crypto. And the key message was diversification, right? So if you have a portfolio. Of equities, of of you know real estate or whatnot, you should really allocate to crypto, um, to to some extent, right? Each to to each like each investor has their own kind of preferences, but it makes your portfolio overall better, even if it's like you know half of a percent uh, of of your portfolio. And so, you know, presumably over the four or five years that you spent at eToro, you had many opportunities to to jump to different crypto companies, right? I'm sure sure people came calling. And so why Kraken? Uh, why why did you decide to make the move to Kraken specifically? Right. So um, first, I want to be clear. eToro is a great, great company. Uh, I have nothing but great things to say about uh, about eToro and about Yoni. Uh, just, just a great success story. But I think what Kraken represents is, for me, is a much better alignment in terms of values. Um, Kraken is really uh, big on its mission and culture uh, to accelerate the adoption of cryptocurrency kind of worldwide. And that really drives a lot of things at Kraken that, to me, feel like I'm at home, meaning... We, we care about freedom. We care about um, enabling people to unlock the opportunities that they have um, using, using crypto. Um, it, it's really another way of saying we, we try to accelerate the adoption of, of, of freedom, of liberty around the world. And, and that kind of manifests itself in many ways. 
and makes me feel like I'm really at a place that aligns with my values. And, you know, uh, people can see, you know, what Jesse Powell has been uh, writing from, from the get go on like, you know, what he believes in and so on and so forth. And it just really resonates with me. And I'm just happy to be with um, a company like that. And so I think you spoke actually a little bit about the differentiation of Kraken, right, which I think is the culture. And I think people within crypto recognize that, right? The focus on security, uh, on privacy, um, you know, and and on, you know, kind of adopting that crypto ethos. But from from, you know, a retailer institutional perspective, how do you go about differentiating an exchange, right? You know, how do you build a different end experience for the for the user, right? And how do you develop a moat? Because one of the things that we've seen within crypto is, you know, it's clear that I, I guess Binance has built a moat as the largest exchange within crypto over the last few years. But there have been a lot of crypto exchanges. I mean, you know, keep in mind, Binance only launched about five years ago, right? We're not talking 20 or 30 years. And before Binance, there were other exchanges. There was Mt. Gox. Bitstamp had its time in the in the spotlight for a while, right? And so no one has really figured out how to build a a, a long term competitive moat and, and establish itself as the dominant player, and certainly not in the U.S. retail market. Um, so how do you kind of think about that and, and, and go about doing that? I think there are a number of challenges that Kraken is executing on quite um, quite well when it comes to uh, when it comes to the industry we're, we're in. One you mentioned is security. Uh, security at Kraken is taken at, at, at a whole new level that I've never experienced in terms of how um, uh, one of our values is to be kind of productively paranoid. We, 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 are, we, we need to make sure that um, Kraken you know, never gets hacked. I mean, I know it's very, very difficult, right? But the security measures we have, the security um, training we, we get, the type of um, kind of the, the the culture of being very very paranoid to to emails. It's a virtual fortress. So so this is this is one thing that's really really important. And as uh, the market kind of sees kind of what's going on with other companies, I think this this really makes Kraken st- stand out. That's one thing. The second is customer service, customer service and customer care. I think when you have money. In, 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 a, in an institution, you expect to be able to talk to someone and talk to someone fast if, if you need it. Um, that is something that I think um, makes us really, really unique and really different. You, it, it goes along on the same path of trust. We have security, yes, but you, we need to be there for our customers. And that is something that um, I think is critical also in relation to your experience with other financial institutions that aren't in crypto, like banking or or credit card companies or so on and so forth, we just want to be better than all of them. And I think our customers can notice that. And then the third pillar is playing by the rules. I mean, it's very hard to scale a, uh, um, a company globally in a compliant uh, in a compliant way to pursue well, all these licenses. When, especially when you don't even know what compliance means because you don't get clarity. <laughs> Cor- correct, correct. But <laughs> but the, the um, it's very big moat to pursue licenses in multiple jurisdictions and not just to pursue the licenses, but maintain the licenses 
adhere to the policies and procedures, work with regulators as regulations are getting updated, uh, work with partners like banks uh, that need your policies and procedures and compliance policy to be updated as well. That on a global scale, very, very difficult. So you can open an exchange and run it globally without registering anywhere. But that is um, that is not a solid foundation um, to you know to 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 grow, um, especially if you have you know fiat on ramps, if you have all these kind of bridges to the old world. So, sounds a little bit like. Do you remember the SEC coming out against Bits Lotto or whatever that exchange was? <laughs> whenever that was, yeah. Um, and so, you know, you spoke to to a lot of them, right? Uh, which are the biggest challenges associated with operating a trading venue in crypto? And so, obviously, a huge one is is regulatory compliance and banking, which are two things you alluded to. But what are some of the other challenges that you guys are faced with? Or, you know, feel free to add to to what I just said. Yeah, I think I think compliance and and regulations is is a is a big one, right? It's a big one, especially on a global scale. Um, that is, um, you know, at the end of the day, Kraken's in the business of trading, investing, building your wealth, things of that nature. But on the, but if you look at banks, if you look at financial institutions, they're really a, a, a pretty robust compliance machines. They have. A lot of people, a lot of software, a lot of resources being dedicated to comply with rules and regulations in, in a way that scales, in a way that doesn't break the, the business. I think that is one giant, um, you know, kind of challenge um, to operate the way that, the way that we and, and other financial institutions uh, operate. And that's actually, I think there's an opportunity in the market for some sort of a way to to digest all these rules and regulations and kind of spit out some sort of a, a um, either prescribed compliance policies or actual code that makes sure that you're compliant in all the jurisdictions that you're, um, wh- wh- you know, where you kind of operate in. That is, that is a, a very big hurdle. Um, the other big hurdle is working with partners. Right. And so in, in that regard, do you have to have local legal partners on the ground in most of these different jurisdictions, like law firms? Like if you're doing business in the UK, do you need to have a UK specific law firm? Or, you know, if you're doing business in Singapore, I mean, do, do you have to have like, how, how do you actually achieve compliance within all those, not just compliance, but ongoing compliance in all those different jurisdictions? Yeah. So, so jurisdictions differ from one another in terms of the requirements. Some do require that you're going to have boots on the ground meaning people in, in, in their actual jurisdictions operating the business. Um, some don't. Um, and in some cases where it's, it's an important market, like the UK or, or, or Europe or you know, wherever you operate, where you have like a, a significant presence or a lot of customers, you probably want to uh, have local law firm that are very familiar with what's going on and very familiar with the subject matter and can advise in, in a way that you, you know, that is kind of trustworthy and can actually be, um, um, the business can count on in making decisions. There's also a lot of merit to do policy and, and talk to the regulators, talk to stakeholders, um, engage them. We have a great com- kind of policy team at Kraken that are doing a phenomenal job on a global scale um, because we want to 
you know, be educators. We want to be, uh, we want to help regulators. We want to make sure that they get everything they need in order to adapt to this rapidly evolving industry and, and be an enabler to innovation and not, not a blocker. And so I, I know I cut you, cut you off there talking about challenges. So is there any, anything else that you wanted to add? I think, I think partners. So when you look at the ecosystem of building a financial institution or building, you know, building um, um, kind of fintech, uh, you really need the, you need really need partners. You need banks, you need credit card companies, uh, you need insurance companies, you need all sorts of things in order to, to grow. Um, and crypto is still perceived to be a high risk uh, vertical, a high risk industry. So that means that a lot of these partners won't work with you. It doesn't matter how big you are. They just won't onboard a crypto, a crypto company. Um, and if they are, they have either a very limited offering or they have a very expensive offering. Um, and that is something that you need to um, kind of deal with as you are trying to scale the business. So, I, you know, banking is an obvious one. Well, actually take insurance, right? The insurance world still doesn't understand crypto and how to provide coverage for, let's say, theft or loss of keys or, you know, things of that nature. Uh, it's really difficult to, for them to assess the risk and distribute the risk in a way that would make it profitable for them. And therefore, the offering when it comes to insurance is very, very limited. And in cases where you have them, it's very expensive. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's another kind of key challenge. I, I think that's, that's a really have. good point that people don't bring up. Even like for a company like ours, that is a, you know, a, a, we're a data company. We're not touching underlying crypto at all. Even getting something like DNO, like directors and officers insurance, because we're a crypto company is difficult, even though, you know, at the end of the day, we're not even touching tokens. We're we're selling information, right? So I think that's a really a really fair point. And so, what about you know? We talked a little bit globally, and obviously, Etoro is a global company. But you are the managing director of North America, after all. And so, naturally, I have to go to the U.S. Uh, and so, what are like U.S. centric challenges that not not just that you've been facing now, but you've been you know you ran Etoro US. I mean, I remember in 2018 we were talking about Etoro getting a bit license. Etoro just announced that they got a bit license this year, and you're not even there anymore for perspective on how long and dragged out. Maybe they got it a little bit ago and they waited to announce it, but the point is that it's an incredibly dragged out process, right? And so, you know how you know how have you kind of seen you know or or, or seen the regulatory environment in the US? evolve and change over the last five years? And what are kind of some US specific challenges that you're facing nowadays, especially in light of, you know, the collapse of, of SCB and, and, and others? Yeah, so the US is, when you operate a, a crypto business, when you operate, you know, financial services, uh, company, uh, fintech, you might be in a situation where there is not a lot of clarity in terms of who is actually regulating you. And in cases, in case there is clarity, um, you're still subject to federal regulators. You are subject to state regulators, and um, and there's another set of people who are regulating you, which are like the state uh, attorney generals, or or I would say kind of more of a catch-all type regulator that just 
are, are out there to try to protect consumers from like fraud and abuse and things of that nature. And so if you tally all of them, uh, especially in the case of crypto, you might be facing north of like 70 agencies uh, that may have jurisdiction over your business. You know, starting from the SEC, FINRA, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, um, FTC in certain cases, obviously all the state, all the state's financial services departments, state AGs, um, and, and, and so on and so forth. So it's really complex. It's really complex and you need to build your compliance policies in your infrastructure in a way that understands these, this complexity. Um, secondly, as you mentioned, for example, on the bit license, sometimes you want to play by the rules. Uh, but it's a multi-year process to get something through the finish line. I mean, New York DFS, even though now it's a whole lot better for like, I think two years, didn't issue a bit license to anyone. The, they just didn't issue any bit license. So if you want to, if you want to operate, uh, in New York, uh, you know, during those, during those days, you just, you just, the regulator wasn't just issuing the licenses. Um, so now, now it's a it's a bit better, but but still, um, what I do see right now, I mean, the dynamic is really interesting because, as we all know, the industry is asking Congress to really clarify the rules of the road road and get you know pass legislation, not just one, but various uh, bills to in order to have clear rules of the road road and and framework to for for the industry, but states are not like waiting um and you see a lot of really interesting legislations bubbling up in 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 state houses so you have utah passing a law pertaining to a dow so that that's really cool i haven't kind of dwelled into the details but they're thinking obviously the legislator is thinking about these things and pass legislation dealing with a dow um new jersey is contemplating a a a bill that would make it uh, similar to the New York bit license in Texas, there's a bill where um, the the legislator is contemplating some sort of a framework for uh, you know for proof of reserve and things of that nature. So all these things are happening, tagged along with the fact that Congress needs to you know uh, really clarify the, the the rules of the wo- uh, road, and that <clears throat> that makes for a really interesting dynamic. Um, in, in terms of like the regulatory landscape in the U.S. And, it's, you know, it's really complex. Yeah. And I mean, my, my next question was, to what degree are, are, are regulators coordinated? And based off what you're saying, it sounds like not so much. Uh, but, but I do wonder, I mean, you know, we saw the, um, you know, the, the collapse of, of S, SVB um, and, uh, and um, I think it was, it was Silvergate originally. And then, you know, the NYAG comes and shuts down Signature Bank, right? Um, and, and it feels like a lot of crypto regulation is piling on at the same time. And there's a lot of thoughts, you know, or, or, or comments going around that like the regulators are out to kill crypto, but the regulators aren't one person. Regulator is a group of, of collectively a large number of people, right? There are, there are a hundred senators in the U S right. There's uh you know, there's the sec, there's the CFTC, there's the, you know, the NYAG and all these different regulatory bodies. Do you think they are speaking to each other a lot? Do you think they're coordinated in their efforts or do you think, you know, these are just different actors kind of acting on their own behalf? Uh, that's a great question. I think that, I think that 
these these regulators, some of them have budgets in the in the billions, um, are very complex systems with with a lot of um, a lot of um, political drivers that drive their their action, um, and I think it is difficult for them to coordinate. So I think sometimes, I mean, depends on leadership at a specific, uh, you know, a specific agency, you would, you would find a leader that wants to do that. You would find a leader that wants to coordinate. Uh, but oftentimes I think these are um, not coordinated plans and, and you can even hear in the kind of public statements that some leaders saying that, you know, ETH is security and other, and other is saying that it isn't. Um, so even, even that in terms of public statements and kind of clarity to the market, you, you can see that there's like lack of coordination among the States. There is sometimes there's a better, a better coordination through like reciprocity agreements or when they do multi-state audits and things of that nature. So sometimes there's a better coordination between the States, but by and large, it's not a well-coordinated network of regulators working in unison and providing clarity to the market. And so there is a lot of uncertainty in crypto right now, right? And somehow, despite that, we've emerged and we're currently sitting at $27,500 Bitcoin. You know, we were at, you know, as high as 28000 This is being recorded, you know, probably a week or so before anybody listens. So if you see the price is different, you know, that's our apologies. But my, my question isn't where is Bitcoin's price going to go? My question is, how do you take advantage of all of that uncertainty and emerge an even better position? You know, what are kind of the, the biggest opportunities that you see in this space and where is Kraken focused? I think there's a, now a, a, a free alpha when it comes to crypto banking. I mean, the law, um, to, to my understanding, doesn't prohibit a bank from banking, you know, crypto firms. So with everything that happened with SVB and Signature and Silvergate, I think that there is now an opportunity for, there's a free alpha in the market for banks who are willing to take some risk um, and onboard, <clears throat> you know, some crypto companies and have some, ex- some exposure into the space. Obviously, it comes with, you know, higher fees and, and it, it's going to be like more, more, uh, more expensive for the crypto firms to operate in that bank. But I just think there's like free alpha out there for uh, banking institutions to figure out what's the best way to onboard and bank crypto companies and take all these kind of all, all basically this market um, and bank this market and, you know, make, make a lot of money. <clears throat> so I think that is, that is a giant opportunity right now in, in the space on the hills of SVB signature and, and, and Silvergate. Um, I also feel that, um, as we talked before, I think there's a giant opportunity in, in RegTech. If you build compliance systems, compliance um, SaaS, um, you, you have a lot of opportunity to cap- capture a lot of upside in all these companies trying to make sure that they're on the up and up and they are ready to be audited and they can sh- quickly demonstrate to a regulator or... or um, you know, uh, uh, other stakeholders that their shop is running in a, in a, comp- in a compliant way. 
Um, I think there's so much opportunity in 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 reg tech. Um, it's it's hard, right? Because these are kind of B two B and maybe long sales cycles. But I j- I just feel it's going to be um, very lucrative. In particular, when institutions, more traditional institutions, trying to get into the space like Fidelity and you know BlackRock and things of that nature, and then you then you sell to these institutions um, a, a suite of services that allows them to be compliant in in this space too, and not just in TradFi. And what about for Kraken specifically, though? Like, as an exchange, you guys are compliant in a large number of jurisdictions, right? You guys are you know, have, have kind of a, a reputation of being secure and, and private. Right. And so naturally I think, you know, especially in the void that's been created with FTX now going under, there's obviously concerns with other exchanges and I'm not going to speak to anybody specifically in that regard. Right. But there's concerns that other exchanges lost user deposits through different, you know, various means. And so naturally there's kind of this opportunity for, for Kraken. Right. And I, I mean, I view that in in particular, and this is just my opinion, but from an institutional adoption perspective, right? Institutions to get comfortable with crypto need to have multiple different venues that they can actually execute and trade on, right? And so I think naturally Kraken probably finds itself in a a pretty good position. Uh, And so how do you kind of go about taking advantage of that? And what do you think the products and services that you need to build are? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think we need to look at the market and see where the next kind of influx, where's the next bull run is going to come from. And I, I agree with you. It's going to come from institutions. It's going to come from, you know, the Black Rocks and the Fidelities and other kind of big institutions and, and eventually pension funds, right? And the, the large uh, investors kind of allocating to crypto, maybe initially just Bitcoin, but later on, maybe to, to kind of additional additional. Um, Many of these guys are already allocating significantly, but into funds, right? So that's how most of the crypto funds are getting their money, right? Or a a large percentage of them is from these institutional allocators. I mean, there's still, people don't realize this. I mean, tens of billions in dry powder sitting within crypto funds waiting to be deployed, right? So, Yeah, but at the end of the day, when you look at where kind of, when you look at the world's kind of asset classes, when you see where the money is, right? So there's a ton in cash, a ton in bonds equity, equities, real estate, all of that. And in each, you can say, hey, this can be at the very least tokenized, right? And when it is tokenized, when real estate is tokenized, when the bond market is tokenized, and there are already kind of companies doing that, then you need to provide them with services that fit this way of doing business. You need to provide them with, you know, a qualified custody solution to, to you know, to, to custody all these all these tokens that represent maybe real estate or represent bonds, or represent equities. You need to provide them with settlement. You need to provide them with a way to kind of audit this thing. You need to provide them with security services. So all these things are are areas that Kraken can play a role in. And I'm not, I'm not saying we we are planning on all of these, but Kraken ha- is is a is a crypto native company. We we were founded to be a crypto company. And so we get this space really, really well. Um, we have institutional customers, we have retail customers, we have uh, what we call pro, meaning people who are doing this um, um, on a more than a casual basis and really kind of know how to, how to kind of trade. But, but by and large, we have the DNA to be able to extend some of these services in a way that would really scale our business. I, I I would add one more kind of focus area. 
in the specifically in the US, which are registered investment advisors. When when you and I met, I I I I, I was speaking about this in 2018, and you've been, and you've been talking about this for longer than anybody in crypto. So I give you full credit. <laughs> so. I think that this is going to be where we're going to see the next wave. Like once registered investment advisors have the clarity and the comfort that what that they can allocate to crypto, some of them already do, right? Some of them are kind of early adopters. They already do that. There's even some, some, some RAs that are dedicated only to crypto. But when you look at the market, this is where most of the assets are looking at, at registered investment advisors. Uh, this is where Americans kind of manage their money. And even if you look at millennials, they're still joining in droves to be customers of registered investment advisors. And when you have this kind of vast market of people who aren't ready to press buy Bitcoin by themselves, but would trust their advisor to do it, this is where you see the next wave and the next kind of influx of money kind of coming in. So I believe this is this is coming very soon, meaning in the next two, three years, you're going to see more and more and more adoption in the RIA space and more allocation to crypto from within uh, customers' portfolios. But when we say crypto, I also want to mention NFTs. So fast forward five years, a, a customer at an RIA would have the opportunity to allocate to equities, to bonds, to you know, things of that nature, but they also have allocation to Bitcoin, ETH, maybe a, you know, a couple other more, but also to maybe digital art or maybe some sort of other IP that can be bought digitally and have better diversification and better kind of risk return on, on their portfolio. That's a hot take. I think that's an underratedly hot take that you think RAs are going to be offering NFTs. But we, we we'll come back and we'll circle back on this a few years from now and see and see. I agree with you on the Bitcoin, ETH, and crypto allocation perspective. The NFT one, though, I look. You've been right on a lot of things over the years. So let's uh, we'll, we'll come circle back on that one. But I, I, you know, speaking of RAs, that's very much a U.S. centric thing. Um, and so as we think about the geographic distribution of interest in crypto, can you speak to that a little bit in terms of where you think, obviously your focus is primarily on North America, but where do you think the interest uh, in crypto is globally right now? Like one of the things that I've been finding interesting, and this is just the last month, so keep that in mind, it's just a month of data, but almost all of the Bitcoin ETH movement has happened on US hours and all which have underperformed um, significantly in US and European hours are really outperforming in Asia, which I think is very interesting. So uh, in Asia hours right now, alts are, are ripping, uh, and Bitcoin and ETH is not, but Bitcoin and ETH is doing well in, in the US and Europe. Take with that what you will. That's only a month of data. Um, but I'm curious as to where you kind of see the biggest opportunity for crypto, where you see interest spread geographically, and, and where Kraken is focused and has operations. Yeah, so I think when you look at uh, various reports in terms of crypto adoption by, by state, by nation, um, you see that the top 10 are, a, a lot of them are, um, developing countries, right? Um, um, you see a lot of adoption in Turkey. You see a lot of adoption now in Lebanon. You see a lot of adoption in places where the motivation to be in crypto is actually survival, like exit the kind of rampant, uh, inflation that is basically, you know, destroying your wealth. And just move into kind of Bitcoin 
or 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 you know stablecoin type um, type economy. So what this, I, I call this digital migration. So you can't leave Lebanon or you can't leave Turkey for whatever reason, and sometimes it's actually might cost you your life. So instead of that, you just download the wallet and you start to participate in this new economy. Um, so I think you see a lot of developing countries uh, in Asia, in Africa. Um, the percentage of people who are using crypto in those in those countries are sometimes outpace what we see in Europe and, and the US. And that has been driven by an understanding that this is basically a way to protect their wealth. And, and, and they're kind of leaping forward into the future. I remember that, um, I mean, I, I'm not sure about exactly the numbers, but in Rwanda, um, there was a survey done where people at s- certain year when 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 they surveyed them, like ninety percent never had a phone call. They they never pick up a phone and, and called someone, but then they leaped into mobile. So they just they just skipped the in, in entireties kind of years of the fifties, sixties, seventies where people had phones, landlines in their homes, and just and just introduced themselves into mobile and just had better reception in Rwanda and better infrastructure for mobile. Uh, even you know. Some, sometimes better than uh, than uh, Bay, the Bay Area, right? So it is. Um, I think it is happening in crypto too. There's some economies in this world that are just leaping forward from a really corrupt um, and and um, and just inefficient uh, financial services system into crypto. Um, so that is that is one thing. Um, that that I definitely see kind of uh, out there, and we we want to Kraken wants to accelerate the adoption of cryptocurrencies worldwide. So wherever this is happening, we're trying to you know play a role and 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 uh, be be part of this movement. And then you have the more established kind of developed countries, Europe, US, where the motivation is really you know uh, diversification, wealth building. Uh, you know, these people are not subject to, well, in the U.S. now it's debatable to hyperinflation, but um, they have like a different motivation. And I think um, in this case, um, I, I, I think it will be really built on just trust, right? That companies are regulated, that this is a trustworthy institution. These are trustworthy institutions and the rules are clear. And once that, once I think that is happening, then you're going to see more adoption. But, but I will add again, going back to NFTs, which Kraken launched. Kraken launched an NFT uh, um, uh, marketplace that the that I think re- I, I think we have a chance of onboarding the next billion people through affinity. So basically, because they want to be part of a you know a sport team, a celebrity, something that represents ownership in a brand that they love. Um, this wasn't part of crypto in you know 2017 and 2019, but now it is, and I think we're going to see. Even though the market collapsed, and right now we're in a bear market, I think we're going to see a lot more coming from ownership of brands and ownership of sports teams and ownership of celebrities and ownership of um, you know um, kind of other things that people really care about. And this is why they're going to onboard themselves into crypto especially in the developed world. And so I guess that kind of leads well into my next question, which is what do you think are kind of the main use cases of crypto? Because one of the things that you've alluded to 
throughout this conversation is this idea of crypto as a hedge asset, um, especially, you know, a hedge against, you know, countries that have hyperinflation, right? It's a way to access, uh, it's a way to access a currency that funnily enough is less volatile, uh, you know, than, than their own native currency. But you've also alluded to NFTs uh, as a major use case. And so where do you kind of see, see the opportunity? Because we haven't really talked about DeFi, for example. We haven't talked about some of the other topics that are hot among others. And look, not everything is going to going to work, and not everything's going to get 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 us to mainstream adoption. So, what do you think the things that that will are? Uh, <clears throat> so we can talk about DeFi because I think this is a great use case, right? <clears throat> I mean, the um, there's one um, initiative I saw of a smart contract that is a form of insurance. So what they do is you can contribute, you know, tokens to the smart contract. And then there's an Oracle that kind of reads from, I think like the UN or something in terms of where, where there are floods. And if you are a farmer in Africa and no insurance companies could care about you because the premium pay is like, you know, very, very low. Uh, so it's not profitable for them to, you know, operate their like entire business there. But now you can onboard yourselves to crypto, buy some tokens, contribute to the smart contract. There's an oracle that reads the kind of weather information. And if there's a flood in the area of where you are and you can you know, and they can geofence you, um, you're gonna get, you know, you're gonna get a claim like automatically paid to you and you'll be able to survive flooding. Um, that is an amazing use case. That's really cool. I haven't heard of that. So I, I think that represents an opportunity for the industry to demonstrate why this matters. And it matters not just for farmers in, in, in Africa. It can matter when it comes to, you know, earthquakes. It can matter to... So, so as long as we're building kind of the, these, all these kind of oracles and all these ways and, and the e- an easier way to kind of unwrap yourself to crypto, and then we build, I mean, there's a ton now being invested in infrastructure, but once there's going to be that UI UX layer being built so that people can have like an easy time understanding, oh, okay, I'm clicking here. This is where my tokens are. And now I'm going to, you know, um, now I'm insured against this, that, or the other. Now I have some sort of a retirement savings account in crypto. Um, this is where we're going to see like a ton of adoption. But to your question, the, this is one co- cool use case. Another use case is just NFTs, right? So I know about, um, you know, artists that decided to, oh, let's, let's try to do this kind of digital art and they live in some remote place somewhere in the, in the world and suddenly they have exposure to global markets, right? They can, they can showcase what they do and some people like it and suddenly they buy it and then they can enjoy from secondary sales kind of royalties uh, rolling into them, something that uh, artists never had uh, because they were selling their, their art into galleries and the gallery was then promoting the artist, but the, the artist would never earn money from, you know, secondary sales. I think that's an amazing, um, use case. Um, um, and then there's remittance and everything else that, you know, people have been talking about in terms of like transacting cross border. Um, it's really, it's really kind of across, across the board. And, and I think, I, I, I st- but I think that the industry needs to do a better job in explaining these and why, why these matters to not just speculators, but why, why, why crypto matters to, you know, everyone. 
And so, you know, you're on the Fundamental Value Podcast. So one question that we ask all of our guests is around fundamentals for crypto. So how do you define or think about, you know, fundamentals for a token? So I think you taught me well that there are no fundamentals for crypto. The really the, the thing that the only real fundamental for crypto is sentiment. Um, that is the best um, best way to kind of I mean because there are no financial reports and no kind of quarterly reports. There's no you can't borrow anything from you know from tradfi into into crypto. So I, I learned from you that probably sentiment is the best way to have or to view as, as some sort of a fundamental, but then also you baked into it a lot of other things that allows maybe to have some, some additional kind of insights into, into a crypt, in, into a token, so, you know, significant, significant events, right? Uh, any, any team changes, any, any joint ventures, any funding, uh, any upgrades, forks, things of that nature. I mean, these are the, I think, you know, quote unquote fundamentals for, uh, for tokens. And if you're an analyst sitting on top of this and trying to kind of use the, you know, trove of data that is now available for crypto, then maybe, maybe there's now a way through companies like the tie to, um, develop a discipline, an entire discipline of, 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 um, you know, of analyzing, of analyzing tokens in a completely different way than how you analyze stocks. Yeah. I mean, I think the market has certainly, certainly evolved over the years, right? I think in a funny way, if we actually make crypto securities, we can create more fundamentals by allowing value to better accrue to token holders than, than, you know, does today. For example, Uniswap, right? Tokens are only accruing, you know, Uniswap's a $4 billion asset, but you don't get any value accrued to as a holder of Uniswap. You know, if you're if you're providing you know liquidity to Uniswap, you can get paid fees, right? So, I think that's I think that's a a, a fair and, and valid point. Uh, and so, you know, what do you think? You know, obviously we've spoke a lot about NFTs, which have been around for a while. We've spoke about Bitcoin and ETH. Um, you know, you've started to allude to you know what I like to call security tokens, but people tried to rebrand as RWAs, which to me are still security tokens, but. What do you think are like the most exciting new and emerging areas in crypto that you see? I think there's there are there are a number of things, right? One is um, you know one is the the basically the ability to um, start earning kind of you know yield or start earning like um, um, rewards on. Um, on assets that are fairly stable, right? Because people are scared when they are kind of staking assets um, because they're exposed to the you know volatility of the of the assets, the underlying asset. But now I think there's an emerging kind of um, set of new offerings and things of that nature where you you have some sort of a of a um, of a return of an asset that's that's fairly stable. And I think that would make and and and, and that return is obviously higher than than let's say, you know, uh, a US dollar offering. So, um I think that would make a lot of institutions kind of really think if they're serving their customers well by not developing capabilities to allocate to these to these tokens and to this, you know, into crypto. Um I think that 
you know, asset managers, I mean, their customers are pretty sophisticated. So they will come to them and say, look, this is, you know, I read this, I read the other, this is, this is not that risk. Uh, this is not that you know high of a risk. Why aren't you allocating to this? Why aren't you like um, you know doing that? And so I think that would um, drive more institutional adoption when they can see they can get some sort of return on on maybe on BTC, maybe on on um, <clears throat> definitely on ETH, but not just. So I think that's that's definitely exciting to me because I, it means just more institutional adoption happening faster. Because everyone are chasing alpha, and if the beta is like manageable, then like why not, right? It kind of weakens the 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 like the pushback. Um, so that's that's one exciting, I think, thing that that is happening. Um, the other is, um, I mean, I I still don't know how to treat like ordinals. I I still don't know how to treat like NFTs on on BTC, but I think there's something there. Um, I need to really kind of dig deeper, but if, if Bitcoin will be an infrastructure or protocol where innovation like NFT can happen, meaning ordinals, but you know, then, then that, that can unlock a lot of, a lot of opportunities that can unlock a lot of like interesting new plays and interesting new companies being built on top of that and providing some sort of a service uh, that can drive more more crypto adoption. So we actually met for the first time five years ago, basically, almost five years ago today at this point, I think. And so, you know, a lot has changed in crypto over those last five years. And I think it would have been hard to kind of guess exactly where we would be today. But when you fast forward and you think about the next five years for crypto, where do you think we'll be and where do you think Kraken will be? Kind of how do you envision Kraken five years from now? So I think uh, I, I want to put like a positive spin on things because I think there's a lot of obviously negative, negativity right now, negative sentiment, especially in the US. But I, I want to I stay positive. I want to say that in Europe, uh, we see kind of Mika coming, which, which will be a, reg- a regulatory framework that would allow for crypto to operate in a very kind of uh, operating under very clear rules of the road and we're going to see exchanges and we're going to see other other entities kind of operating under Mika and and providing um providing people with the opportunity to onboard to 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 crypto so i i'm very kind of bullish on that in the u.s i think that um yes the industry is facing definitely uphill battles right now um, but, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm bullish. I think you, you now at the house for the first time you have a, a digital asset subcommittee and, and there's a, there's like a, an entire subcommittee dedicated to our industry. So I think that's a start, but I, I see that kind of only growing. Um, and, and so in five years, I think where we're going to see the industry is we're going to see the industry being much, much bigger. I think you're going to see a lot of financial institutions be in crypto if there aren't already. And I see Kraken as a much bigger company providing swath of services that are extending beyond trading and investing and into kind of wealth management and into some other areas uh, that we're exploring 
um, and really providing people with an opportunity to kind of build their wealth uh, while still advance, advancing the cause of freedom worldwide. And so my final question is, what is your most controversial take in crypto right now? Maybe that I think banks are can be the kind of the catalyst for a change. Um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people are saying that at the end of the day, with some degree of, of truth, that Bitcoin represents essentially a, 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 a clash between centralized, surveilled industry and, and, and basically a decentralized, free kind of society, right? But I, I, think, I think maybe there is a path where banks are actually not adversarial to the cause of crypto, but they are, they are finding a way to actually wanting to promote this, maybe in the form of offering, instead of offering like savings accounts, right? Or, or credit lines that are based on fiat, they're now going to have a banking license, but all of their operations will be based will be on the blockchain. And so you, when you open an account at this bank, you will receive or you will be offered, you know, yield services. You will provide, uh, you will be provided with all sorts of credit, credit facilities and things of that nature and all based on blockchain with a banking license. Um, and, and that may accelerate the adoption of, of crypto. So in, instead of them being kind of adversarial, I mean, some of them will be. But maybe that is where we're going to see some really kind of interesting moves. If, if, if a bunch of kind of crypto investors would own banks and would, would start kind of, um, you know, taking the banking industry in that direction, that can really be like a, a catalyst for a change. And so where can listeners find out more about you and, and Kraken and where can they follow you? And we'll make sure to put the links uh, below as well. So, you know, just go to, you know, Kraken.com or download the Kraken app um, and we'll, we'll be happy to have you as our customers. Uh, and in terms of myself, just Google Guy Hirsch and, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn, kind of easier. It's easy to find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Guy. This was, this was great. Uh, loved having you on and we'll definitely have to do this again in, you know, retrospect in a year from now or two. Would love to. Thank you.